KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. You try to impart that on the guys now that, like, this is what's possible. You can have these moments that transcend team, that transcend program, and that bring people together in this magical way. And that's the only way to describe that period in time magical. I'll probably coach the rest of my life trying to find that moment again. And our guest this week is Bobby Hughes. He is the head men's basketball coach at Division Three Rosemont College on the main line. And coach, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So talk to me a little bit about uh, what life's been like for you uh, the last uh, several months, just as far as trying to be a basketball coach in the midst of a pandemic. Yes, it's funny, Matt. When this all started, the last normal thing I did was go down to D.C. and and see uh, Hofstra win the CAA championship last year. I'd gone down and my wife and I had talked about it and said, oh, should we do this? Should I not do this? And that, I think it was Tuesday night. And then everything broke Wednesday and Thursday. And looking back, it seems so irresponsible now. But at the time, you felt so normal doing it. And, and little did I know that would just disappear. And those first couple months were tough. I mean, you really couldn't do much. I mean, I was home the whole time. Um, you know, you could recruit, but you you, know, you could organize. We organized Zoom calls with our players, with our alumni, you know, that sort of thing. But there was nothing to do. So I, I think so much of, of being a coach is having contact, having FaceTime with your, with your players. And it was just taken away so abruptly that you didn't even know how to respond. And at times you questioned you know, what are we doing here? Like, what is, what is the purpose of, of what I'm doing? And that started to change. And, and the recruiting piece was great because you could spend more time on that. I mean, a lot of times, especially at the Division three level, you're juggling so many things that sometimes you can't get to this event or, you, you know, you have to put this call off until another time, whatever it is. So we were able to focus on recruiting. We actually ended up getting a great class and things became a little bit more normal in the summer. You could go to some events, you could go to some workouts. This this fall was tough. I think we always had that promise of a season sitting out there and you hoped that the numbers would get better. We started to run some workouts and then we had to get shut down pretty abruptly because of a positive test, which was disappointing. And then you know, as the numbers spiked, it just became obvious that this wasn't going to happen. So trying to bring some normalcy to our players' lives, I think, is the, the number one priority. And we'll see how we can do that this semester, whether that's just running workouts or practices, maybe even getting in some some games. But I'd be lying if I didn't say it's been a very challenging part of my life. Has this changed things for you with coaching permanently? And when I say that, I don't mean maybe how you look at it, maybe how you recruit, you know, have, will, has it changed the way you approach things? Absolutely. I, what COVID has shown me is how important the relationship part of this profession is. And we all get caught up at times in the, the day-to-day grind of the X's and O's and the, the, the planning and the, even this, the recruiting, the planning of recruiting. And, this idea of, of winning and losing. And, and it is important. Don't get me wrong. Like it's, we're competitive people. We want to compete. We want to win. We want to go and, and achieve. But at the same time, this, this profession is about building relationships and manifesting those relationships into 
very meaningful experiences. And, and usually that is manifested in winning. But that was the thing that got taken away first and foremost was that contact. So I think just that appreciation of the people who you surround yourself with, whether it's your staff, whether it's the people at the school, certainly your players. And having a deep appreciation and an ability to understand that that's why you do this is for that connection and, and that ability to uplift the community. And that's what we're ultimately, I think, you know, going to appreciate more when we get back to being a community. So absolutely, uh, you know, it, it kind of lays bare some of the, um, the, the less um, important things. And you know you're going to get back to doing those things, but at the same time, maybe you'll have a different perspective on it. So let's talk a little bit about your story growing up. Uh, where was basketball on the uh, depth chart of sports? Were you a basketball guy or were you a whatever's in season and whatever they're playing in the neighborhood I'm playing? Yeah, I mean, we played everything growing up. I, mean, I grew up in Westchester, played most sports, didn't play football. That was the only thing I really didn't play. And I was probably, as a youth, best at baseball. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. Like, I've told this, I tell this to my players, I was never a good basketball player, like, ever. I was never a good basketball player, but I loved basketball. And my earliest sports memories are basketball memories. And for me, the game kind of surrounded my life from a very young age. Uh, my parents were both heavily involved, you know, in our local CYO. Uh, my mom eventually was the, the athletic director at um, St. Maximilian Colby in Westchester. My dad coached the eighth grade boys. My mom coached the eighth grade girls in addition to her other responsibilities. So with a large family, I'm the oldest of six, from, I don't know, the time I was 10 years old or 11 years old, we were in the gyms all the time, every, three, four nights a week, every day, most days on Saturdays, every day, most days on Sundays. We didn't even have a gym at that time. We actually used, it's funny, they're a competitor of ours now and used to be in our conference. We would spend a lot of time in Immaculata on those weekends. And that's where we would have our practices. And, you know, the second grade and third grade teams would come in, then the third and fourth grade and so on and so forth. So for me, you know, my life just seemed always, basketball just always seemed to be a part of it for whatever reason, even as I wasn't uh, the, the best basketball player. Um, so when I got into high school, I wanted to stay involved and became a manager and, you know, kept that going through St. Joe's. And, you know, again, I, I eventually got pretty good at golf, but. <laughs> Did you, as a manager, and for people that don't, that aren't familiar especially at the college level, manager is a hard job. It's a lot of organizational. It's a lot of, you know, behind the scenes stuff. You, you don't get a lot of glory. But were you looking at this? Was it just a way to, to be connected to basketball? Or are you starting to think I could coach? This is a way I can kind of get in there, learn uh, without having without being a player. No, absolutely. I, I wanted to coach pretty early on. I, I looked at coaches really from high school on and said, that's something that I want to consider doing. I, I, mean, I had a lot of thoughts and a lot of ideas and a lot of interests, but coaching was always one of those things that I kept coming back to. So when I got to St. Joe's, my 
high school, the guy who ran our high school program at, at Malvern, who coincidentally is now my assistant coach, uh, Bud Tosti, um, had had gotten me in touch with with Phil Martelli and. Phil had very kindly invited me to be a manager and included me in the program. And managers, you know, are, uh, like you said, I I think play a crucial role in any department. I think the nice thing about the way the managers worked at St. Joe's is Phil had a mantra and uh, he, he lived it every single day that the managers are here with us, not for us. And that set a tone early on that of inclusivity that, really enabled me, I think, to develop some some really meaningful relationships again at a time where, I, again, I'm not going to lie, I wish I, could, I wish I could tell this story about me being this great. I wasn't a very good manager because I think I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be more important than I necessarily was. Um, but that didn't stop Phil from inviting me to watch film from him, including me in, in parts of things, you know, answering my questions when I had them about the scouting reports, whatever it may be. And just that opportunity to be at St. Joe's at that time, you know, Jameer uh, was a year younger than me, Delante two years younger than me. It was a magical time at St. Joe's. So I got lucky in so many ways that I had these doors opened up for me that I didn't have to do anything. So to be associated with those people, it just really crystallized, again, that love of this game. And after college, you know, I went into working in the corporate world right away and I knew early on that it wasn't. It wasn't for me. And I kept looking for every avenue to get back into coaching. The choice of St. Joe's for college, was that discussion or the, the connection with Coach Martelli made before you get to college like it? Or is it you'd already chosen St. Joe's and then it's, hey, let's let's try this. Like what went into going to Hawk Hill? Yeah, so both my parents went to St. Joe's. So, you know, St. Joe's, being a St. Joe's fan was always part of my my youth you know, my dad was definitely more of like a big five fan, you know, growing up, he would root for, you know, other schools. Uh, my mom was a hardcore St. Joe's fan. She actually has this great book. She kept every newspaper clipping that involved St. Joe's. I have it at my house now. I mean, almost I, I can't say everyone, but I mean, the book is three or four inches thick of newspaper clippings from St. Joe's from probably 1961 or 62 through 1963 or 64. It's an incredible piece of history of of St. Joe's basketball. And so when I, you know, started looking at schools, I looked at all like division one schools and wanted to work. And then Phil came out to do like a clinic for my mom's CYO program one night, you know, when I was a senior at Malvern and I talked to him there and he invited me. And then, uh, you know, over the summer, I think that Bud may have talked to him a little bit about me. And, and he sent me this nice note just reminding me that I had a place there. So it, it was I, I felt welcome right away. I felt wel- welcome right away there. And I, I think that the decision for St. Joe's was definitely part of being part of, of that family. So that time frame you mentioned, Jameer Nelson, Delante West, we're talking 2003, 2004. You know, you know they're very good, and you know what you're watching. But at that young age, do you appreciate the the magnitude of what a, a school that size that was performing on the national stage and undefeated regular season and number one seed the NCAA tournament? Did you appreciate how remarkable that was? I, I, you know what? It's funny, Matt, you asked the question that way because 
My first year was 99, 2000, and we were okay that year. We were okay. It wasn't great. You know, I think slightly below 500. But at the end of the year, we knocked off Temple at the Palestra when they were fifth in the country, Pepe Sanchez and all those guys. And that was the first time that I really felt, wow, this is different. Like there's something special about, about this that goes beyond just being a basketball program, like you said, in the, in the small school, like, and then Jameer got there and everything just changed and you knew it right away. You knew even at that age, even at 20 years old or whatever I was exactly, you knew you were watching someone special. Like I can't even, I remember his visit, his official visit. We actually had to go out to Cardinal O'Hara to practice. Something was happening in the field house. I don't remember what it was. So I sat there on the sidelines at Cardinal O'Hara with Jameer Nelson and I even then, like you knew that he was just a little bit different and just a little bit, you know, I don't even know how to describe it, but like you just you just knew. And watching him in practice every day for three years was just a true gift. I mean, to see his leadership in action, uh, I, I use it with all my players to this day. Like you just it was it's hard to actually put into words, but. Uh, and there's and there's markers as you go through. You know, he hits the shot versus St. Bonaventure to force overtime from half court. And that first run my sophomore year when we almost beat Stanford in the in the second round of the tournament, the, the kind of the, the, the injuries and the disappointment of the junior year. And then for my senior year was, you know, we graduated, you know, all these great players, Naeem Crenshaw, Bill Phillips, Marvin O'Connor, Damian Reed, four, four, four thousand point scores going into that year like you knew you were good. You knew in practice that things were even different, you know, but you still went up and we went up my first, that first game that year, we played Boston college. And, you know, I remember being on the bus on the way over there and thinking, man, we're like thinking like this, this team has a chance to be really good, but like, what does that mean? And, you know, Boston college was pretty good that year and and they just whooped them. And those guys just went out there and they just took it to them. And you knew, you knew what you were up for. And so, yeah, like I, and I think that's the other thing when it comes to coaching for me that you try to put across your players. Like you've seen those special teams, you've been a part of those moments. And the next year I wasn't working with the team, but I was traveling around the country with Mike Farley, who's, you know, now the acting coach at Hofstra and Mike and I went to like every game together. And, you know, you try to impart that on the guys now that like, this is what's possible. You can have these moments that transcend team, that transcend program and then bring people together in this magical way. And that's the only way to describe that period in time is magical. And I'll probably coach the rest of my life trying to find that moment again. So you graduate 03, correct? Yep. And you mentioned you went into the corporate world. Was did you pursue at that point something coaching wise, or was it just I got my degree now I've got to go put it to use? Not right away. I, what had happened is, is as an alum who was you know big, uh, good you know donor to the program and, and very involved in our booster club had come up to me after a game and had um, commented, that, you know, I, that he heard about me or whatever, and just gave me his card and said, Hey, if you ever, when you get out of college, if you need a job, give me a call. So uh, I called him about, you know, early in the summer and his company, which was a big, big company, ConAgra Foods, this big conglomerate 
hired me. And, you know, it was a lot of money and a company car and an expense report and nice people. And I, I gave it a shot, but I knew right away, like I was never unhappy in it. Like I wasn't one of these people that went to work and like hated their life. Like I had a good life, but I knew that coaching, I wanted to coach again. So um, when Mike Farley became the head coach of the JV team and their ConAgra did a layoff and I got laid off and I moved back into the Philadelphia area, I was driving a limousine and he said, well, hey, why don't you just come and help me with JV? And I said, sure. And even after that, I would work in a couple more corporate jobs, but I would do the JV for the one year with him. And then two years after, I knew that I wanted to coach. So when the opportunity uh, presented itself in early 2008 to pursue it 100%, I just went for it. And, and thankfully, you know, that's when I got involved in Division Three, and been involved in Division Three ever since. What was the biggest thing you learned from Phil Martelli about coaching and specifically coaching at the college level? I think organization and also the, the, the scouting piece of it, the, the, the ability to plan. And I think those two things go hand in hand. I mean, he was religious about watching film, about planning practice, those types of things. He didn't waste any time in those things. So from a technical perspective, but even from an organ, you know, from being a manager, I saw the levels of organization he had and the thought that he put into travel in terms of, you know, when we're doing what, when, what we're doing, when, and that was always so important to him. And I realized that it takes that level of organization to be successful, but from a, a, an actual basketball perspective, you know, our teams, those St. Joe's teams were just always so prepared. They were always so ready to play. And I knew that that came not just from putting a bunch of words or putting a bunch of stats on paper, but it came from hours and hours of watching film. When my senior year, he had this thing, we used to have this bag, you had the VHS tape. So we'd have this bag that held like maybe, I don't know, 15 VHS tapes in it. And for whatever reason, he he didn't want to have the bag in his room because I guess he thought maybe he would, you know, stay up all night watching film, which is inevitably what he did anyways. So I kept the bag in, in my room and, you know, uh, again, there's all of a sudden at, at 1230 or one o'clock, the call would come. Hey, Barney, can you bring me down, uh, you know, this tape and this tape? And, you know, it, it was always funny. But at the same time, like I, I took away from that, that opportunity, you know, that, that, that knowledge that this is what it takes to be successful at the college level as a coach. It takes this level of, of preparation and you have to put those hours in. I mean, you have to put those hours in and it, it's time. Uh, and that's, the thing I think that you have to be ready to sacrifice for this job is, is, is your time to really focus on that film. We, I mentioned, I asked you the question, if you appreciated what you got to see from a pure basketball standpoint at that young age, you're almost getting a coaching clinic every day on a daily basis, be it X and O or how you run a, a high quality program was there appreciation at the age of 19 20 21 of, of what you were getting a front row seat to or was that you know 2008 2009 2010 once you get waist deep into it, you're like oh my goodness i have i can't believe what i was privy to yeah no i i absolutely think that there was not an appreciation for that right away i did not know what i was witnessing and it wasn't until I got involved in basketball at a deeper level and saw how other people did things. And that's not to you know, be disparaging to anyone. 
it just surprised me that everyone wasn't as organized, wasn't as thorough. And it doesn't mean I was a good person doing scouting reports and everything first. I wasn't like I had to learn too. like, it didn't come just naturally when I got my first job. In fact, you know, I can remember being yelled at and told this is garbage by my first boss, which is fine. He was right. He, I had to go through those growing pains. And, but I think having the knowledge of, of knowing what I had seen as a young man and then being able to apply it in, in a very, very, you know, real way as a young coach, that allowed me to, you know, put that, not just the knowledge that I was growing and learning as a coach in those, in those 07 to 010, you know, 2010 years, but then also applying what I had seen with my own eyes and, and, and been a part of as a young man at St. Joe's, that it just, it was a good blend for me. It was a good mix for me. And I think it ultimately helped me, you know, develop as a coach, you know, that I am now. So we mentioned you're coaching JV at St. Joe's, and then the door opens, I believe, at Drew. Uh, yeah. And talk about how that door opens. What's the connection that gets you in the door there as an sure. assistant? Yeah, so I had left a job working in, in Old City, Philadelphia, and right by Independence Hall, my office. I could look out and see Independence Hall from my cubicle. It was a great place to work from a location, and I really enjoyed it. But I had, uh, you know, it wasn't the best fit for me and they wanted to move in a different direction. And I had some, thankfully had some money, you know, that I had saved up and thought, okay, well, we can, we can make this, we can make this run. And I started working all these hoop group events, these grassroots type events. I mean, basically worked every event they ran for like six months. And I started to get involved with this job and that job. And there was this ops director, there was this grad assistant job, there was this and nothing ever happened, like nothing. I mean, it was it was it was conversation. I had probably three or four interviews, and it was just disappointment after disappointment. And finally, I was kind of resolved to going back and doing JV and going and driving the limo again, and maybe making one more run at it the following year. And in this was coinciding with the Phillies, and I'm a huge Phillies fan. I was a season ticket holder at the time, making their run in '08. So all of a sudden, I want to say, you know, October 15th is the start of basketball practice. I would say on October 7th or 8th, my phone rang and it was Daryl Keckler at Drew. And he had gotten my number from Dave Duda, who was the assistant coach at St. Joe's at the time, had been at Widener. And Dave knew uh, Daryl through another guy because Daryl was the assistant at Gettysburg and Gettysburg had just made a sweet 16 run. And Daryl asked me if I wanted to coach with him. And I, I never met him. I didn't know him. And, you know, he we were the same age, too, which was a crazy thing. And uh, he was going up to Drew, which, had, you know, had a really rough run of it. So he called me up. We talked a few times. Uh, I met him for the first time and I met the team for the first time on October 15th. So I'm walking into our first practice, shaking everyone's hand and saying, hey, how you doing? And that year was a trial by fire. Not only was I an inexperienced guy in terms of doing all the things that an assistant needs to do, I was, you know, we were not very good. <laughs> we finished the year four and 21. It was not, it was not uh, enjoyable from that perspective. And, uh, but it was a great learning, you know, lesson for me. And, and, you know, 
the year, thankfully, you know, with Daryl's guidance and, and help. And again, he was really, um, you know, I'm just so thankful that he gave me the opportunity when no one else would. And, you know, in this business, you, you, you know, people that give you opportunities, you know, you're just eternally grateful for them because they're so few and far between. How much did the timing of that, because it is, like you said, first day of practice, you're shaking hands and you're meeting your boss and everything mm-hmm. on the fly. How much does that almost help you don't outthink yourself? And it's just, you know, let's just go out there and take it one day at a time. And, you know, uh, I would I would imagine as challenging it is on some ways, it almost maybe is helpful in others. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it teaches you very quickly how much you don't know about things. So you have to really reframe everything to learning, listening, and then being able to to try to teach that. I mean, Daryl came from Gettysburg, where they ran a, a lot of Princeton stuff, his way of organizing practice, which we I've actually stolen a lot from and use here now, even to this day was different from the way I was accustomed to seeing Phil done things. Cause really other than Bud Tosti and, and, and Phil Martelli, I really hadn't seen, you know, on a day-to-day basis, the way people ran practices. So it was, it was helpful in that I knew pretty early on to, to keep my mouth shut as much as I could and, and try to learn. And, but it was also a great education because, you know, learning something like the Princeton, which you see, you know, elements of in all levels of basketball now. I mean, to the point where some of the stuff that nobody else was doing 12 years ago is so common now. It's, it's kind of odd. It, it was a great way of learning. And again, it didn't, it didn't have its, it didn't lack for its failures. Most of them on my end. I mean, I, I remember one of the first times I had to do a live scout, you know, it wasn't by film. So you couldn't hit pause and rewind and everything. And I ran into a coaching friend and we're talking as this scout is taking place. And I realized I'm not able to have a conversation and pay attention to basketball at the same time. In fact, I'm really, really bad at it. Handing that live scout back to my boss and then losing the game and having him, you know, having him get mad at me for it is one of the best lessons that this, this game's ever given me. And because it, it teaches you uh, that, you know, you, you, you have to be able to, to come through with stuff. You have to be able to, to do, you know, it's not just about trying at this, at this level. I mean, you have actually have to be able to, to accomplish something and put something together. So after drew, you go to Washington in Maryland, correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when do you start, you guys had some success at Washington. When do you start to really feel like I'm getting close to, being ready to give my own program a shot? Well, I probably felt like I was close when I was 19. (laughs) 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 And and now sitting here at 40, having been a head coach at, 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 at Rosemont since 2012, I know how much I didn't know even then, but to answer your very, you know, your question, I, I knew that I really wanted to start pursuing head coaching opportunities. You know, that's during that second year, I, I thought that I was, I was I was ready at this level to be able to do this. I, I don't know if that was an accurate statement. I'm not sure I was right about that. But I don't think you're ever really ready. There's things about the you, you can talk about it all you want, and every it's cliche to say you know moving that 18 inches is down the bench is moving a mile, but it's the truth. So we had a, a nice year that didn't end well. We had some injuries down the stretch that kind of hurt us, but we had a great season overall. It was a very memorable season uh, at Washington. 
And, you know, the education I got from Rob Nugent down there, you know, I'm thankful again for the formative years with, with Phil. I'm thankful for Daryl hiring me and teaching me the ropes. Rob Nugent, the fact that he's not a college basketball coach right now is just a, it's a tragedy. He's one of the smartest basketball men I've ever met. And he taught me a way of looking at the game that I had never, you know, really even thought of or didn't think was possible. So, and he was so religious to film. I mean, he, he, you know, on level with, with, with Phil and, and I hadn't seen that up close in that way. I mean, just the amount of like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., you know, mornings with him. I mean, and those memorable mornings, you know, not just not just like, oh, what are we doing here? I mean, it was times where you were like engrossed in it, you know, to a to a nerdy, you know, degree. You're like, oh, this is great. You know, my friends are all still probably out at the bars and everything. And I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to, you know, defend Franklin and Marshall's same plays that have been running for 35 years. Anyway. I, I thought from that education, I thought that Rob had set me up uh, well to do it. And I'm so appreciative of that opportunity because without seeing him operate firsthand, I don't think I would have had the confidence to say, and I don't mean the confidence to stand in front of a room and, and interview. I mean the internal confidence to stand in front of your team and say, I've prepared you to play basketball today. And, you know, again, he was so giving as a teacher that I, I really, for me, I, you know, a very selfish person, <laughs> it taught me very much to, to try to, you know, see things, you know, outside of, of my very self-centered perspective. So, again, um, you know, that, that was it. And I was very confident going into to that summer that hopefully, you know, I'd find something, um, you know, as a head coach or move up a level or something like that. So you do find the opportunity at Rosemont. Uh, How has it come about? And what did you know about Rosemont before the head coach opening comes on your radar? So I'd actually interviewed at Rosemont when they went co-ed. I'd actually gotten an interview, I think, mostly on the strength of, of Phil's recommendation for me. And so I knew the AD a little bit from that initial, that first interview. So I think that was helpful. And I had just gone through another process with another uh, university as a head coach. So I had just gone through the process. And I think through that process, I'd kind of try to tell them what I thought they wanted to hear rather than talk about who I am. And with Rosemont, I didn't do that. It's funny because that was the summer of 2012. And we talk about opportunity and opportunity being scarce in this business. I actually, the, the morning that Rosemont offered me the job, that evening, a Division I coach offered me a position on their staff. And so after years of getting very few opportunities, I get two on the exact same day. And some people had worked very hard to help me get that division one opportunity. So I felt very obligated in a way to, to, to see that out and to, to try to explore that. But I think in my own mind, and I, I remember talking to my, my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time about it. And I just, I wanted the opportunity to do my own thing. I wanted the opportunity to run my own program. And as a guy who wasn't a great player, who wasn't a great manager either, to be able to, to go out as a coach and say, I can take this program and, and make something of it. I think that was, 
you know, it was a, certainly egotistical. Uh, it certainly is something, uh, maybe a little arrogance on my part, but I, I remember in the, the 48 hours where I was considering the two jobs, talking to someone, and I don't even remember who the person is at this point. And they told me, well, you can never win, you know, you can never be, have a winning record at Rosemont. Like it just won't, it won't happen. So why would you not take the division one opportunity? And I just remember even now, like then just thinking, no, you know what? I, I can do this. Like, we can go, we can overcome some of the obstacles at this school and, and we can make something of it. And, you know, we have a long way to go, but overall, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be proud of about making that decision. And I'm very glad that I did. And, 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 you know, it's enabled me not just to have some professional, you know, success, but certainly a lot of, per, you know, personal success as well. So you get the job. Are you at any point overwhelmed or do you feel you know, your experience, what you've seen. Uh, I always ask athletes when they go from high school to college or college to pro, what's the biggest adjustment? And 99 out of 100 times, it's speed of the game. It's adjusting to, did you have a similar, obviously not speed of the game, but speed of what's expected of you and what your day-to-day challenges are becoming a head coach? And were you ready for it? (laughs) The speed of the game is a thing. I mean, I, I remember the first game I coached, and, and that seemed like we played Eastern here, and I remember thinking that game lasted 25 minutes like in, in real time uh, compared to recent games where you feel like they last three or four hours because they've slowed down. But that – so right away, that wasn't it. it. It hit me when we started playing. For me, there was a moment of terror about – I'd say three to five weeks before the season started. And my wife and I were out one night and we were talking about this and somebody had asked me like a pretty, uh, like a prodding question about what I was doing. They weren't a basketball person and I kind of just glossed over it. And I went home that night and I was living with my parents at the time and I was in my old like childhood bedroom. And I just remember all of a sudden thinking, how am I going to guard ball screens? And realizing that there was no one there to tell me how we were going to do it, I had to come up with this. And every rotation and everything else after. And I had to like, and I hadn't thought of it to that level of a, a micro detail that like, that I couldn't just say like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I had to actually go out and put all this stuff down. And, it, you know, uh, that was, I did not sleep. I don't think I went to bed that night. Like I just, all of a sudden, all these things that I had to do, it seemed insurmountable that we could get to a point where we'd be able to, to teach all of it. And obviously you can tell through this conversation now and in my general life, I'm a very verbose person. I have a lot of words to say and I, I sometimes get very tangential in, in the manner in which I speak and the stories that I tell. But I'm very different, I think, when I coach in that I'm very specific about what I say and how I say it. And I try to be repetitive in the, the types of words that I use. And that was, again, advice from Phil Martelli because he knew the type of person I was. And he's like, you can't coach like this. You can't, you can't do this. So I had to think a lot about what I mean and write out what I was going to say. And you didn't want it to be scripted, but you also couldn't, I couldn't just be me. It had to be some new thing that kind of coalesced behind, you know, this, this idea of who you are as a coach. And, you know, 
the, the last thing I'll say is around that same time, I watched a documentary. It was that remember when Conan left the, the Tonight Show right. and he, he did that documentary about him. And he said something very interesting that somebody asked him, like, how are you so comfortable around world leaders and famous actors and actresses and authors and so on and so forth all the time? And he said that somebody had told him along the way that, you know, act like you've been there before. So those first couple months, I mean, I think that's all I did is I just acted like I'd been a head coach for 10 years, whether I entirely knew everything or not. And I think eventually I settled into to who I was on the floor very, very quickly. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Rosemont College men's basketball coach Bobby Hughes right after this. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest this week, Rosemont College men's basketball coach, Bobby Hughes. So since you've been at Rosemont, you've built the program. You've had a lot of success. The conference has changed. Mm-hmm. A lot of teams that were in your conference went and formed their their own conference. Talk a little bit about that because it was schools like Cabrini, Gwyneth Mercy, uh, Newman, a lot of heavy hitters that – yeah. You know, and it, it completely changed the dynamic of what uh, the CSAC uh, was all about. Uh, and you guys are still in the conference. What was that like as, you know, half the old guard gets up and leaves? Matt, it, it, it's disappointing. Uh, it was disappointing because those were some really, really good rivalries. And when I came into the conference, Cabrini was coming off of a, a national championship runner-up. And they had one of the best players in the country, if not the best and most talented player in the country. When I came here, one of our goals was, you know, not just like we wanted to be competitive. Like that was one of the things like we wanted to be competitive. The program was only three years old. Um, They had made a, you know, they made the playoffs once and, you know, which was a great thing for the school and the previous coach did a tremendous job of getting them there and kind of laying that foundation. But I wanted to be consistently competitive, not to the point where, you know, you could possibly win, but you, you should win or you're, you're, you're considered, Hey, we're part of this. So one of the things we said we had to do was we had to beat Cabrini. We had to beat Newman. We had to beat Gwyn. Like it wasn't just enough to show up and give a great effort. Like we had to go and beat these teams and it took a couple years, but I was so proud that one of the things I was most proud about in the older iteration is, you know, we were able to do that, not consistently, not all the time, but we were able to beat those teams. And certainly we were competitive in almost every single game with those teams. So along the way, we developed great rivalries with them and you get that taken away. It stinks. It's not what you want, but you adjust. I mean, at the end of the day, since then, we've developed great rivalry with Karen and I think with, with Centenary. And these are teams that were there. And even with Wilson, who came into our league, as a new team two years ago, you know, we've had just tremendous games uh, with them since, since they've come into the conference. So that stuff sort of adjusts, you know, it's disappointing because Cabrini is two miles away. Newman is 25 minutes away. Gwinnett is 20 minutes away. And for our students who could come there and created these great atmospheres. So it, it, it certainly, um, you know, isn't, I think the ideal situation from a fan perspective, but, you know, you can't worry about that when you're actually coaching. You know, you, you just go out and say, all right, well, you know, we want to be at the top of this conference. That's our goal. Our goal is to be at the top top of this conference every single year. And, um, you know, hopefully we're able to do that. You were able to do that the 2018-2019 season. You guys win the conference. You go to the NCAA tournament. Uh, 
what's that year like, and when does it start to crystallize that that you've got a group that could do something like that? We knew the whole year. We were the favorite to win the league that year. Um, We had a ton of talent on the team, so the expectations were, were pretty high. But we got off to a rough start, and that rough start continued through the middle of the year, uh, which was disappointing. Um, we had some issues with some personnel, and some of that took care of itself naturally. Some of it, you know, we had to, to, to force, unfortunately. And, you know, things started to turn in January of that year, and it started to come together. We made some changes from an, from an offensive perspective, some wrinkles here and there. I think we realized that the guy who ended up being the, the, the most outstanding player of our conference tournament, Keith Blassingale, we realized how important he was to our offense. So we tried to make him a focal point. And then, you know, we'd had, uh, you know, a stretch right in the beginning of January that didn't go our way. And then Arcadia, who was, uh, you know, right outside the top 25 at the time, they were tremendous. They had a tremendous year. They went to the second round of the tournament. Um, they came into to our building, you know, in mid-January. And, you know, I don't think, you know, from an outsider's perspective, a lot of people thought we could win, and we, we won that game. Um, we had a hot shooting night. It was great. And you thought, okay, great. Things have turned. Two nights later, we go to Immaculata, and now this is a non-conference game. And the previous four years, we had played at Immaculata. This is a true story. Four, the previous four games at Immaculata in those four years were all one-point games. Each one of them was a one-point game. And I'm expecting another barn burner, and they just whoop us. They just – we had no interest in being there. And I remember saying to my assistant, Bud, coming out, I, I remember saying, Coach Tosti, I'm not sure we can lose one more game. <laughs> like, I, I, like our, our psyche just might not be able to handle it. And thankfully, we went on a run, and we didn't lose again until the NCAA tournament. And give the guys credit. I think a lot of it had to do with their ability to really, going back to what I've talked about, take – the game plans and really put them in action the rest of the way because the guys did such a great job of being ready to play and through injuries and through the other personnel stuff like when it came to the ball going up in the air they were ready to play and that run that eight game seven game whatever it is run that we made is just so so indelible in my mind because Whereas every day kind of, you know, was frustrating because you were, we were always curious, like, could we get to the next day? Can we get there? Can we, can we do this? Come game time, like there were very few times on the sideline where I wasn't sitting there like, oh man, this is, we're good. Like we were in control of this. And that's a nice thing to have as a coach is, is to have that feeling of, of, you know, control because you don't usually have that feeling. <laughs> what was that? The clock strikes zero in the conference championship game, and you're headed to the NCAA tournament. What is, what's the rush of emotions at that moment? Uh, it's bonkers. I, I It was a great basketball game. Give credit. So Karen hosted. They have a really great Division three gym. You know, it's just a, like a perfect Division three gym in a lot of ways. I don't know if it sits – 800, 1,000 people. I don't know what it sits, but they had people everywhere. I mean, you could, I'm sure the fire marshal was not allowed on campus that night. And it was loud. It was hot. I mean, we had people standing behind our bench. I mean, three, four people deep. 
And it was back and forth. We took a big lead. They came back. They took a lead. We got the lead at halftime. I mean, it was just one of those back and forth, just you're, you're just trying to get to the next possession every single time. And they took like a five-point lead with five minutes remaining. And we went on a run and uh, are able to, you know, take the lead, but, you know, into the last minute. And they just keep hitting shots. And I remember Julio Myers, who was a senior all-conference player for us, he makes a free throw to put us up by three. And I, no one has timeouts left or anything like that. But, you know, we had fouled right before that up three with like eight seconds left or nine seconds left. And they had made two. They, we inbounded. We made two. I don't know if they thought we were going to foul again or not, but we told our guys, like, don't. Um, and we, have a, we had a call at the time, and their best player, who was the conference player in the year last year, tries to go behind his back, and our, our junior captain, Nick Gemmel, like, comes up with the ball. He throws, you know, he does like the old, like throw the ball into the rafters kind of thing. And I have a picture of it right here on my desk and of the the moment. Like I remember putting my hands up and immediately turning to to hug Coach Tosti. And, you know, it just, it was the culmination of so many failures and so many obstacles to be able to, to say that this group of guys were able to overcome that. I and mean, even that season was so many obstacles. Uh, I it just, it's why we do this. And then to see the community, I mean, we had a, a bunch of fans there, a couple hundred fans there rush the court and, you know, uh, I, it was special. And then you was the NCAA tournament after a rush of emotion like that. Was it almost like, Oh, by the way, now we've got to play one of the best teams in the country in Amherst. I mean, after like you, you, the way you describe that, it means so much. But then there's still more to do, and there's more to do against a phenomenal program. How difficult was the challenge of recharging the kids and kind of climbing the mountain again? Not difficult, honestly. I, I give them a ton of credit that year. You know, we were not just there to just go through the motions. But I told them at every step, like, we need to enjoy this. We need to enjoy, you know, we had talked about the night before the championship game. I had brought them in and told them all, like, you know, I I had them all close their eyes. And I I told them to picture, you know, that post game. And I told them, like, you know, guys, close your eyes. Like, everyone, your loved ones are around you. The scoreboard's at zero. Rosemont is led. The, the game is over. And I was like, the ladder's up. I was like, the, the ladder's up, and someone hands you a pair of scissors. I was like, now open your eyes and go make it happen. And so just that experience for them, I told them all, like, as they went up, I was like, look around. Like, enjoy this. And then when we had the announcement of, of Amherst, I said, you know, same thing. I was like, enjoy this moment, this selection moment and the next day in practice you know we had cameras there from the local press enjoy this moment guys enjoy this like take this in but then when we get on the floor focus you know when that came like i was like now you know we need this focus and i don't you know we don't practice a ton towards the end of the year i've never been a coach that believes in long like two-hour practices towards the end of the year i think you come in and you get your stuff but they were so used to my um you know, my game planning that when it came to Amherst, 
they never treated it like anything big. I knew it was big. <laughs> when I saw when I saw Amherst come up before our name, I was like, "Oh, here we go." I was like, "I knew it." I, I, there's just some like extra sensory thing that like you're like you're about to see Rosemont. But for me, that was awesome to to play Dave Hickson, one of the the greatest Division three, greatest college coaches in history in that first game. And I, I remember shaking his hand and I just said, you know, this is, this is an honor. And, you know, it was, it was incredibly amazing. And, but to also go in and be like, guys, we are going in there to win this game. Like we are going in to win it. I remember it vividly, you know, we, we had this whole idea. We, we run some Princeton stuff, some chin stuff. And, you know, we had this idea. I mean, they're huge. I mean, their, their starting lineup was like six, two, six, five, six, 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 eight, six, eleven. you know? So, they had us every position and we wanted to bring, you know, so we flopped our guards and our forwards and we said, okay, this is what we're going to do to bring that size away from the basket. We're going to try to give our best player a chance to make plays in the middle of the floor. And that first half, I mean, first of all, we defended them. Great. I mean, I was so like, it was our best game. It was our best, our best 30 minutes. I should say it was the best consistent 30 minutes of basketball we played. And we just defended them with everything we had and we kept the game close and we had a, a shot at halftime that if it goes in, I think it would have been rather than a seven or eight point game it was a four or five point game. And I think if that goes in, you know, maybe the second half takes a different turn, but I told our guys, I was like, guys, listen, I fully expect them to have like eight blocks at halftime because if they have eight blocks, it means we're attacking, not worried about them blocking shots. And we did, I think we went into halftime. I think they had nine blocks. And unfortunately the, the other shots that I, thought would go in didn't go in and that's the you know when you're playing a team with that much talent that much history that much tradition you know those are the things you have to do and uh, you know again I wouldn't trade the experience for for anything and I I know how much it meant to our guys and I can't wait to get back and do it with it with another group what does it mean to you and I know the answer to this but I want you to espouse it what does it mean to you to be a part of the philadelphia basketball community it's everything to me and i don't think there's a more unique group or community in basketball anywhere in the world than what we have here in philadelphia the history the tradition the players the coaches the personalities around the game we all know you know, the types of people we're talking about there, there's nothing like it. So to have just a small place in that is, is so special. I mean, that's what, as a little kid, I think I saw more than anything is I saw that. And from a very young age, you know, wanted to feel like, you know, you were able to be part of that. And the thing I've learned as an adult, it's, it's not just on game day. It's, every day it's I can call up countless coaches in this area and ask for advice and it's those small moments out on the recruiting trail and everyone is so supportive of each other and just tries to pick each other up and has each other you know everyone's back and respects each other so much there's just it's hard to 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 put it into words to be honest even though I tried and those relationships and those people make the hard days and the tough days and the days where you feel like you're, you're just, you know, spinning your wheels so much easier. So uh, it's a very unique thing. And, and again, I wouldn't trade it for the world that, that, I, that I've been a part of it for, 
you know, almost a decade or, you know, two decades now. And to wrap up here, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who has had a more unique journey to where they are than, than you uh, in the realm of head basketball coaches. How often do you take a step back and think about, man, how did I get from manager at St. Joe's to here? I drove a limo for a while in the middle. Like the, it, It's a really, really incredible journey. How often do you take a step back and just kind of appreciate the, the journey that got you to where you are now? Uh, well, again, I, I'm a very egotistical person, so I think that there was a part of me that always thought I'd be here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, no, you know, before this year, before COVID, not very often. I mean, honestly, before COVID, I, I you know, you 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 never, you just don't have the time. You know, even in the like, the one thing I didn't say about winning the championship was the best. So I'll go back to that just for a second. The best thing that winning and going to the NCAA tournament allowed me to, to do and to realize was all of a sudden, and you know this, you get all these texts and you get calls and, and messages and everything else. I mean, your phone is just is flooded with things. And it gave me the chance to say thank you to so many people. And people that made huge impacts, whether it's Daryl Keckler, whether it's Rob Nugent, whether it's Lynn Rothenhofer, my former AD here who hired me, obviously someone like Phil and the other guys that were on staff there. It allowed me to realize that I didn't do this on my own, that this wasn't one person's journey, that this wasn't one person's destination that there were countless people who helped me become the coach and the person I am today. And I think it, 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 where I certainly have that arrogance and that, that, that ego, it also humbles you and allows you to, to keep this perspective that I don't know anything. I'm still learning. I'm still just that guy in 2008 or that guy back in 1999 that didn't know anything about this game and keep that perspective. And then you combine that with, with the COVID and being physically removed from doing so many of these things. And it allows some space for what you're talking about. And it allows some space to say, wow, this has, you know, been quite the journey. Hopefully it's not over. Bobby Hughes, thanks so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Bobby Hughes, head men's basketball coach at Rosemont College, for being our guest this week. Now, if you like this show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon Ten Sixty. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in again next week when we bring you another great conversation with someone you should know more about.